the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, teleporting cats completely flummoxed Jillian Anderson, who thought the science was settled. Breakneck voyages around the Cape, sloping fiddleheads and Neanderthals on violin. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Griffin Barber talking about their new entry in the Ring of Fire series, 1636 Mission to the Mughals. This is a pretty cool addition to the series with a group of uptimers and downtimers rounding the Cape of Good Hope, fighting off pirates and arriving in India to try and trade with a fractious Mughal empire for opium and saltpeter. Eric and Griffin reveal a lot of cool historical tidbits that they discovered in working on the book and talk about the story and characters in it as well. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now here's the news. Hey, it's the April trade paperback. We only have one out for April, but it's a good one. If you've been following the reissue of the two omni-volumes, Fleet Inquisitor and Fleet Renegade by Susan R. Matthew, you've met Andre Kosciusko. He's a character you could say is pretty conflicted. His job is to enforce a totalitarian government's edicts via torture and intimidation. On the other hand, he's incredibly loyal to those who serve or help him, and he's looking for a way out of his hideous job almost from the beginning of his term of service if it wasn't for the darned addiction he has to it. Anyway, it's a fantastic space opera series. Six novels in these compilations, Fleet Inquisitor and Fleet Renegade, and now the all-new Book 7 in the Under Jurisdiction series is available at booksellers everywhere. This is Blood Enemies by Susan R. Matthews. In this one, Andre has escaped the jurisdiction, and maybe even his own past, perhaps, in Gone Beyond Space. But now the Angel of Death, which is this terrible terrorist fanatic organization, has come to Gone Beyond. To bring these genocidal monsters down, Andre must reconnect with the life he thought he'd left behind. He just keeps getting dragged back in, poor guy, and once again fighting his own dual nature. On the line is planetary genocide and one chance to bring down the Angel of Death before tens of thousands more die. Blood Enemies by Susan R. Matthews is now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Griffin Barber talking about their new book in the Ring of Fire series, 1636, Mission to the Moguls. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome Eric Flint and Griffin Barber to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hi. Hey. Uh, Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with over 3 million books in print. He's the creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with the first novel, 1632. With David Drake, he's written six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series, and David Weber collaborated on 1633. 1634, the Baltic War, and the uh, sort of Honorverse subseries that included latest entry, Cauldron of Ghost. Um, what's the name of that subseries again, Eric? It suddenly just dropped from my mind. Uh, Crown of Slaves, right? Yeah, it's, there's three books in it. There's Crown of Slaves, Torture Freedom, and the last one was Cauldron of Ghosts. They're all part of... Uh, of of David's Honorverse. He's also co-authored with Reich Spohr, David Carrico, Katie Wentworth, Dave Freer, and many others. Eric's latest solo Ring of Fire novel is 1636, The Audubon Onslaught. He was for many years a labor union activist, and he lives near Chicago, Illinois, over there on the Gary side of things, I believe. Griffin Barber spent his youth in four different countries, learning three languages and burning all his bridges. Finally settled in Northern California with a day job as a police officer in a major metropolitan department, 
He lives the good life with his lovely wife, crazy smart daughter, needy dog, and indifferent cat. That's a lot of adjectives. Now at Booksellers Everywhere is a new addition to the Ring of Fire series, 1636 Mission to the Mughals. All right, tell me how to say it, guys. Mughals, yeah. Mughals. Mughals, yeah. Uh, as Griffin was telling me, it's it's like uh, we got our term uh, mogul from it. By Eric Flint and Griffin Barber. So the, the little town from West Virginia, Grantville, set down in the middle of Europe in 1632, um, has come a long way. Wars have been fought, treaties made, scientific and technological advances recreated over the course of this great series. One of the most difficult problems the Grantville residents have had over the course of the series, and something I think Eric has deliberately held back on, is the ability to reproduce modern-day drugs in pharmacology. Um, do the circumstances and the period in history that they're in make this particularly difficult? manufacture for several years now chlorophenicol, which was the first really powerful antibiotic ever developed. Um, it's an artificial antibiotic. Uh, it is no longer used very much in our world because it had a uh, one out of 25,000 people who took it had fatal reactions to it, which in our world is not considered acceptable. But in the 17th century, when you're dealing with plague and typhus and typhoid epidemics and dysentery, you know, a 1 in 25,000 chance is, is quite acceptable. Yeah. Other than that... Um, well, I know they made aspirin. There are always more problems making this stuff than you think there are. Um, there are a whole lot of things you need to have to make other things to make other things to get to where you want that people just tend not to think of. Um, one of the things, for instance, this isn't with uh, what kind of syringes do you use? I mean, what kind of tubing do you use to run stuff through? Uh, it's things like that. Um, the kind of needles available to people at the time, there were needles available that were really big and very painful to use. Um, so, there's a lot of reasons why it takes long, longer than you might think to develop a lot of some medical stuff. Other stuff can be done quickly, and some stuff can. Yeah. And I will be honest, I partly shaped that based on what I think is going to make for the best story. Yeah, at least people can still get horrible diseases, uh, horrible gangrene and stuff on occasion. Or... And that was that was kind of one of the things that we looked at when we were uh, planning this uh, particular engine in the series was the. You know what? What do we have that we need to get? And uh, you know, opiates are—you uh, know—they're still used, uh, and they haven't lost any of their efficacy in all the years since uh, you know the original opium trade uh, between East Asian uh, partners started back in the 14th and even the 12th century. So. Uh, it works, you know, and that's one of the things is that you can, sure, you can make some artificial stuff, but why would you do that if you were going to expend all that effort to bootstrap that industry if you had something natural you could get your, uh, yourself or easily? And it is available where the poppy seed, where the poppies grow, right? Exactly. Which is Asia, um, and uh, particularly this area of India where the, the novel mostly takes place. Um Tell me a little bit, before we go on, maybe uh, tell us about the genesis of, of you guys coming together to write the novel. How did you decide to do this particular story? Uh, Griff, I'm going to let you <laughs> tell that. Because <laughs> okay. you remember uh, it better than well, I do. Yeah, uh, our mutual friend and uh, another author in the series, uh, uh, Chuck Gannon, uh, so we talked about uh, it was about ten years ago now. Uh, we chatted about uh, you know where I was going and what I was doing. And Chuck had just come off of writing, uh, um, I believe it was uh, uh, the Cardinal, the one of the Cardinal ones. Uh, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but sixteen, one of the sixteen thirty-five books. He just finished reading, writing it, and uh, he said, "Hey, you know, you got to write for the Grantville Gazette. They they uh, they reward good storytellers, and you got to write for them." And I kind of poo-pooed the idea because 
I, I didn't even like time travel, I said. So a year later, Chuck came back around to me and said, hey, uh, do you, uh, how are you, how you doing? I said, oh, uh, not so well. <laughs> I still had yet to get anything published. And he said, uh, well, you might want to consider again what I was telling you last year, again this year. So I, I went ahead and did that. I wrote a short story for uh, the Grantville Gazette. And the following uh, uh, August was the Worldcon, which is also the host of the Minicon. And at the Minicon, they have uh, the 1632 Minicon. Eric has a roundtable with uh, the authors in the mainline novels talking about what's upcoming. It's called Snurking the Plots. Uh, and uh, in their discussion, they, they talked about a bunch of different areas and everything else like that. Um, I uh, you know, was thinking to myself, what happened? With, wasn't the Taj Mahal built in 1632 or something like that? So I, I raised my hand and asked what was going on in the, uh, in the Mughal Empire at the time uh, with uh, the new timeline with the 1632 verse, and Eric uh, quipped, uh, we don't know, right? Well, which I took to be a challenge to my, to my ability, and I went ahead and started to uh, figure out what I had to do as far as research, which was considerable, and then uh, start to write some short stories and those eventually got uh, Eric's notice as well, and, and uh, he started talking about braiding, braiding stories together with another uh, gentleman, and uh, maybe seeing if we could work it into a novel eventually. Um, and I continued to work at it, and uh, had a short story rather quickly for uh, the Grantville Gazette, and those were later incorporated into this novel. Cool. Um, so... The two big commodities, it seems, that sort of drive the the story. Um, this is what it, it's all about: is the USA, the United States of Europe, which is formed now, um, needs saltpeter and it needs opium, and those are the two things that it can get there. Um, what's it wasn't the best saltpeter made from like bat guano um, in India back in them days? Um. Yes and no. There, there was uh, bat guano was is assumed to be one of the original sources for uh, saltpeter. Uh, the Indian trade actually started from about uh, the inter-Indian trade. So Bijapur, a bunch of the different uh, Indian states were already trading in saltpeter because it was uh, used for their artillery park. You know, they, they had uh, quite considerable uh, artillery at the time uh, from the 16th century. So even a hundred years before. There was uh, the the Europeans uh, started to really trade there. Um, the the uh, Indians were already trading it amongst themselves and with the wider Asian trade community. Uh, and it mostly was made from uh, biological waste and uh, uh, urine from animals and uh, humans. So uh, the horses, the many many horses that they would import, they would uh, basically use those grounds. Because the weather is so extreme in its humidity uh, that and uh, dry season that it actually is, has a chance to form saltpeter crystals, as opposed to uh, uh, having to go through a process um, as it had to be done in Europe, uh, et cetera. So the the environment was uh, more or less perfect for saltpeter uh, crystal formation. So it's the 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 dryness of the climate. And it wasn't necessarily that there were some in the these these bat caves. The, I mean, because I've read, you know, I've in many historical novels, authors seem to love to talk about the process of making saltpeter and and gunpowder. And there's lots of urine and feces and stuff involved. Um, exactly. Yes, that's exactly correct. They uh, uh, what is what's interesting is that until the arrival of the Europeans, there's not a whole lot of records as to exactly how they processed it. Um, and how they obtained it. Uh, the Europeans were interested in the process because it differed from their own. Um, but the, it wasn't just the, the dryness, it was the actual extremes of weather and the predictability of the weather. Uh. So you could have extremely, you, during the monsoon, you would have tons of rain that would leach the, uh, the material through the uh, uh, soil, and then it would dry out to hard pan, and it would form crystals on the edges of the hard pan, you know, on a, you know how mud cracks when it's in sun. Mm -hmm. um, it would dry out on that, and they would harvest it from that. And they also had the labor uh, to do it. They had the free—I uh, wouldn't say free labor. They had the actual slave labor to uh, consume uh, or 
another um there's opium also out there um though i think most of us probably at least know part of the answer why is opium so why is it an important to find a steady source for opium for uh for grantville and and uh its allies well without without anesthetic any kind of modern medicine involves any kind of surgery is pretty much impossible um there's a certain amount of dental work you can do uh, without anesthetic (coughs) and in a real pinch you can use things like um, i mean yeah there's there's alcohol you know there's various time-honored substitutes which we use in the real world um but it doesn't work very well um because it's excruciatingly painful um so it really makes a huge difference if you can get your hands on um on a supply of um of real anesthetic and and the easiest way to make that is to start with an opiate base which is more you know heroin i mean more, you know opium uh out of which you can do all kinds of things so that's really the reason that they're um trying to get it um and that's about it i mean really that that's kind of the whole thing yeah there's been a great deal of fighting since grantville arrived um war making because they arrived in the period of great turmoil and there's lots of soldiers that um that could use that as well right i mean there's a specific need for it that's not just uh, everybody needs it. Um, so, yeah, the, the strategic situation is such that they can't get it from the uh, one of the closer sources, which would be Turkey. Turkey was also a uh, – uh, uh, the Anatolian uh, plateau was one of the other places where opium – uh, propagated naturally, so they could have gotten it from there. But uh, again, the last title of the the last book in the series <laughs> is Ottoman Onslaught, so you can figure that there's not a whole lot of friendly relations going on with the Ottomans. So they needed to secure a source that was other than uh, relying on trade through the Levant or uh, uh, through Turkey. Yeah, the, the Eric Eric dealt with um yeah. with Vienna and the and the and the Ottomans. Let's talk maybe a little more about the characters and, and then get back to um, the geopolitical stuff and, and such. Um, or, or talk more about the story. How, how is the uh, USC delegation going to get there? Um, what will it take in this day and age? They, they leave before Grantville had come up, made radios, right? Uh, no, they, they have radios, um, but the... Uh... The, the the trick is how to use them because um, one problem you have is you're in the middle of the um, what's called the monitor minimum. So long range radio transmission is a lot harder in this period of history than it is nowadays. So that's one problem that they face from the very beginning. Um, but beyond that, um, um, they do have radio, but but being able to have it and use it long distance, especially without people knowing you're using it, um, is, is two separate questions. Uh, the only way they're going to get there is, is to uh, sail. Um, it's theoretically possible to go overland, but um, uh, in the real world that would have been uh, extremely difficult. Um, so that's how they're actually going to do it. They, you know, they 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 sail, um, and that's pretty much true of all the. Uh, we've had other delegations have also gone, and that's been true of all of them pretty much is that they've sailed. Uh, it's about the only real way you can do it in this time period. Do they have to go down and round Africa? Um, do they transport over the? No, no, they they the they. Griff, you did the actual. Uh, remind me how you what you did. You did the actual plotting of the uh, of the route. Yeah. I didn't. So, yep, they had to go around the the Cape because going through the Levant would be uh, again having to deal with the Ottomans and then also having to deal with the Persians, uh, and then eventually be making their way through a war torn area of uh, Afghanistan at the time that was in conflict between the Persians and the uh, Mughals. 
it was it was just not a uh, I mean the it would have been a whole novel just to get them probably to Persia <laughs> uh, let alone to try and get them to India so yeah. well there's a great uh, there's a great pirate attack in the book um, that uh, that our characters deal with that that's really fun who who was it that was attacking actually it was a uh, a Dutch uh, an actual historical figure uh, a Dutch pirate who uh, who converted to Islam uh, as a uh, hostage and then rose up the ranks and became part of the Salih uh, pirates out of North Africa. Um, the, the pirates that have been, had been a, and continued to be up until the 20th century happened to be uh, a, a real uh, problem for North African shipping and Mediterranean shipping, but also on the... Uh, outer coast of uh of north africa they uh so these are real barbary pilots like pirates yeah well uh, yeah they're before they're called Salih. uh yeah but they are similar to the barbary pirates certainly well that that in itself is a cool part of the book getting there um so let's talk about some of the characters that are along it's a mixture of of people from the future or the the future that won't be or will be and uh 1630s we have Bertram Wyman leading. Who is he, and why was he chosen for this? Um, Bertram is a character from the, the first short story I wrote for the 1632, uh, the Grantville Gazette. Uh, he is a, uh, uh, a Sephardic Jew uh, out of, uh, uh, he basically grew up in Southeast, uh, or South, yeah, Southeast Europe and uh, like Hungary, Vienna, somewhere like that. And he became a, a spy for uh, the USC under uh, uh, Don uh, Francisco. Um, so he becomes a uh, he works for them, and then he does something with uh, the two other uh, people that he kind of brings to the story, uh, the Duponts, uh, Monique and her father Gervais. Um, they're uh, basically con artists. Uh, working and in, in, uh, working through the, their way through Europe, who have for, for reasons that are uh, not necessary to this story, they need to get out of Europe because the uh, the Cardinal Richelieu really wants them dead because they used his name. All three of them, Bertram uh, in particular, used his name in vain, as it were, to uh, get some compliance from another cardinal. And uh, it's the uh, father and daughter, right? Monique and. Uh... Her dad's name is Gervais, or yes, yes. And they are, um, they he has a bit of a backstory. He has um, that we that we learn more about in the in the novel. Um, he's a yep. really smart guy. Um, not he's a con artist because of things that have <laughs> thrown him into con artistry, right? Yeah, yes. Uh, you know, there's there's. Uh... There's a lot that's going on in the in the era that uh, Eric chose to plop the uh, Grantville down in. You know, there's a very big uh, movement towards you know rationalism and and trying to figure these things out. But there's also a lot of backlash against uh, those that are to study uh, human anatomy and and uh, science in general. So there's a lot of ignorance and that kind of thing. So he, and and. Uh, he likes to think that Gervais likes to think that he is a victim of that uh, that backlash. Um, he, he's he's also a pretty low character. <laughs> mm. He he enjoys being smarter than those around him. So they are uh, they are some of the uh, the downtimers or uptimers. I can't which is which. The well, those are uh, all downtimers. They're okay. Downtimers are are uh, historically uh, historical people that are there. Um, we also have uh, some some uptimers, our our uh, Grantville people there. Um, we have a pair of medics along, and uh, some young men who um, who have built things, including uh, I believe railroad tracks. Who who are some of these people? Um, particularly our uh, medics. They're a fun fun set of characters to follow. The uptime uptime is just the American characters. Um, in this novel, are not ones that have appeared. That, as far as I know, in anywhere else in the series, uh, 
possibly in a few short enough stories, but they haven't appeared in any novels. So they're a new set of characters. Um, and the reason for that is, is kind of obvious. It's that, you know, when you have this many authors working in the series, and we have now over, um, by now there's over 150 different authors who have written something in the series. Um, you've got to be a little careful that you don't have people stepping all over each other. Uh, for that reason, when you start a whole new story like this, um, it's typically the practice to uh, to use characters that just haven't appeared before. That way you don't have to worry about getting in the way of some yeah. other person's story. That, um, um, so in any event, that's, that's why, that's where they came from. Uh, and Griff, I think you selected them, and you, I'm assuming you did it out of the grid. Um, we developed a long time ago a um, we call it the grid, which is a. Um, it, it, what happened was that when we first started opening the series up to let other people write in it, um, I started getting cranky because um, my reasonably realistic small town. It was suddenly turning out to have uh, an enormous number of ex-Navy SEALs, <laughs> uh, retired rocket scientists. It was just it was getting goofy, you know. I mean, people would just come up with characters just because they were trying to conveniently tell a story. But, uh, so I sort of put my foot down and said, no, I, w I don't want characters like this. I want characters that are reasonably realistic. And at that point, uh, one of the people active in the group, uh, Virginia DeMars, who was a, um, a former, uh, in an earlier life, was the, um, um, a genealogist, a serious genealogist. And she said that she could, if I wanted, um, she could actually uh, use software she had to design an actual town. Um, so she did. Uh, I told her, yeah, that'd be great. So she produced, uh, what she did was she fed into the program basic demographic data for Marion County, which is the real county that Grantville is situated in. Grantville is a, myth, is a fictional town, although I modeled it very closely after the real town of, uh, of Mannington. But um, what she did was, was put in uh, all of this demographic information, and, and the program actually generated an entire town of um, about 3,500 people. And we call it the grid, and what the grid provides is uh, people's uh, age, when they were born, uh, what their family affiliations are, uh, what their religious affiliations are, if any, uh, what their educational level is, uh, military service, if any, it, it pretty much, you know, provides you, provides us with a, a basic uh, uh, framework. And a rule, I passed a rule then that and if you wanted to write uh, with any uptime character, uh, uptime characters, American characters, you had to select somebody from this grid. You couldn't just pick whoever you wanted. And that's a rule that I follow myself. Uh, David Weber follows it when he writes in it. So does Misty Lackey. Everybody does. Uh, so that would have been the, the suite of characters from which Griff would have picked whoever he picked. But he's the one who actually picked them. So I'm going to let him vote. Uh, kind of. <laughs> yeah, kind of, kind of was the one who picked. I, I really was at a loss because the grid was uh, a bit of a challenge to figure out. Uh, and, of course, not being uh, uh, an avid reader of the series before I started to write the short stories, I kind of didn't know how all of it worked. Uh, but Eric was uh, kind enough with his time to go ahead and figure out, okay, well, these are some available folks. And, you know, because I, I there's a following in the, the, the 1632 fan base and the writers as well. It's, uh, do you side with the uptimers or the downtimers? It's kind of like, who do you think have the more interesting stories to tell? And I've always kind of felt like the downtimers are some pretty cool cats. Uh, they, they always had some interesting things to say. But having that in mind, we were also trying to figure out, you know, they're going to have to survive. So these guys are going to have to have some kind of security uh, detachment uh, or something like that, to, you know. And then we also have to give what are the Grant Villers going to present to the emperor of emperors, the, the emperor, the world Caesar, what are they going to present to him? 
to make him go, well, yeah, okay, I'll give you some, I'll give you a deal on this opium. I'll allow you to trade in it because those were monopolies uh, of the state. Uh, both saltpeter and, and opium were both uh, state monopolies at one point or another in the Mughal Empire. So uh, we chose to go ahead with some guys with the, the Tacrail experience because that gave us both. Tacrail being the uh, USC Army's um, uh, division of, like, basically the Armored Corps of Engineers, but is focused specifically on railroad and railroad building and maintenance. So the uh, the the principal, the actual leader in title, is John Dexter Ennis, um, who also brings his wife. Uh, and Rodney Tottenham is Tottenham is the uh, uh, the male medic. His wife uh, Priscilla Tottenham is also. Those are the three primary kind of uh, up timer folks. And then they have a bunch of younger privates that are uh, you know uh, or enlisted guys that are with them uh, to help out with security. And they'll figure. I hope. If we do a couple more of these books, they'll figure more prominently in those books. Uh, and they're Bobby, Ricky, and Randy, which I make a, a bit of a, uh, an expression about that from uh, the downtimers' perspective is why is everybody's got a, an E at the end of their name, uh, an E sound. <clears throat> but they uh, end up being uh, more, uh, I guess they're not actually, they're actually rank as second lieutenant, but uh, they're more the uh, backdrop characters uh, and uh, muscle for uh, the uh, the mission yeah. as it begins. There is the uh, is it John's wife who um, who uh, takes the, the her gun out and blows up blows away the uh, attacking bandits. Yes, uh, yes, Ilsa is, a, but she's a downtimer. She she marries him after uh, uh, the Battle of the Crapper. He's, uh, she's one of the. Uh, uh, folks that survived that. Uh, she's German. So she's not actually an uptimer, although she's as close as you can get to being an uptimer without being one. Yeah, well, she certainly likes her, uh, <laughs> her 1600 version of uh, Second Amendment's rights. I guess she likes to have that pistol around. So, and she's she is modeled after my wife as far as her shooting ability. Um, just being a natural shooter, my, uh, my wife was exactly the same. She, I put it uh, went to the range, put a gun in her hand, and she just was, you know, right off the bat, just putting me to shame with her the quality of her shooting. Uh, so it, it's uh, interesting that uh, that turned turned out the way it did. Uh, she's she's a really fun character in the in the story because she also gets to be put into the harem later. <laughs> so, but before we go on to more of the story, uh, tell us about Salim, who is who is sort of a bridge character. Um, he's a really great character. He was probably my favorite in the book, kind of a bridge of East and West. Well, that, that means a lot to me because uh, uh, I, I, he had to be, you know, he had to, uh, he had to be that bridge because otherwise there's just too much going on that you're, you're not uh, going to be able to understand as a reader unless there's somebody else. He, the, the, the fun thing about him and the Mughal Empire in general, or the, the, one of the interesting things about the Mughal Empire was they were as close as you can get to being a meritocracy in their nobility as I think any empire has ever been. Um, if you, you had to suck up to the, to the emperor or at least be impress him, but your rank and everything was very much dependent on how good a general or how good a soldier or how good you were at a particular job. And, and you were paid for it. And once you died, your, your kids didn't get that. You you had to they your kids had to earn it, um, and one of the ways they there's there's a complex geopolitical thing going on there, but the many of the Afghans uh, who Salim is an Afghan uh, from the Khyber Pass area of uh, of Afghanistan and uh, modern day Pakistan, uh, which is right in the heart of uh, Mughal territory at this point. The Afghans were the uh, Individual individual prince, uh, princes who had carved out Muslim states in India in North India at the time uh, that the Mughals invaded. So when the Mughals invaded, they toppled all these uh, Afghans from their rule, uh, and it's ongoing even at the time of the novel. Uh, they're still toppling uh, several Shia states uh, and uh, in the south. 
Bijapur and some other ones. So he was, the, as an Afghan, he's kind of this outsider who's an insider who's got all this experience of, of travel that uh, none of the other characters do, uh, except for uh, the Venetian Greta Nego who comes up later on. Um, uh, another downtimer, but he is that nexus of events because he's the one also who brings back the records uh, from the Grantville Library, indicating uh, the succession and the succession war, civil war, etc. Yeah. He's really cool because he uh, he he has extreme competence mixed with uh, with kind of loyalty and the ability to to judge character. Yeah, that's he's kind of the, the one of those Heinlein type characters. He's very very capable, um, but uh, and that was one of the things that was just amazing to me about uh, the the history of the Mughals was that there were so many people that were that hyper uh, competent uh, folks that just did amazing things. Um, another of the downtime characters who's kind of a minor character is the Venetian uh, that uh, Bertram. Uh, meets uh, and knows when they're in Surat. And that character is an actual historical figure who snowed the emperor uh, for years, taking down basically $1,200 a day in fees to create a canon, the likes of which the court had never seen. And he was a con man, and he got away with it. And uh, I thought that that struck me as just amazing. So I, I wanted to incorporate that in the, the multi-ethnic, the multinational uh, character of the Mughal court was something that had to be brought in, too, and how that all related to the children of the court and how they interacted with one another was something I wanted to touch on as well, because it, it, it is, in its essence, a family drama, but there's a lot of... Uh, interesting byplay between those two, uh, between all the different nationalities, ethnicities, uh, cultures, religions um, that are going on in India at the time. All right. We have gotten to the point where we're going to have to talk about the court, which is something that uh, that you got to keep in your mind. And, and, and slowly uh, you begin to understand it. You don't have to have it at first, but uh, it slowly uh, becomes a uh, uh, greatly in play in the novel. So this is the emperor, the uh, the raja, what the that built the Taj Mahal that we start with, right? Yeah. Where are we, and who is the court, and and there's no primogeniture as you mentioned. Um, what's going on here? What's the cultural and political situation? Okay, so the Mughal Empire is it's. Uh, really it's high point as far as creative uh, uh, endeavors, uh, artistry, and uh, um, they're located in uh, uh, Red Fort, which is just outside of Agra, which is the uh, at the time that the, that Salim catches up with them, and then they stay there a bit longer than they would have historically. Yeah, because uh, they move, right? To be honest, they, 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 the court always moved around, uh, but I use the excuse of Mumtaz Mahal's uh, death and the construction of the Taj Mahal as kind of an excuse to, to keep them around a little bit more during the hot season because they would go to, into Kashmir, into the highlands, to uh, enjoy their gardens that they had constructed uh, and uh, uh, the peaceful uh, beauty of Shangri-La, that kind of thing. Uh, they would always be uh, migrating around, but also as a show of force, uh, to uh, the local princes and uh, that kind of thing to say, hey, you know, we're here and uh, we have a humongous army that's going to eat everything in sight uh, if you don't uh, make sure that you, uh, you know, show us the proper respect and that kind of thing. Um, it's Shah Jahan, who has been emperor only for uh, six years. He, is, uh, uh, he had rebelled against his father unsuccessfully uh, when his father's... Uh, I think fifth wife uh, had uh, decided she wanted to put her son on the throne. Uh, Jahangir, Shah Jahan's father, was a uh, notorious drunkard 
and uh, liked his opium, um, was basically stoned or drunk or both for most of the last part of his life, uh, which his, his wife used to great advantage to advance her friends, family, and influence in the court. But uh, in the end, she was betrayed by her own brother in Shah Jahan's favor. And Shah Jahan then rose to power once his father passed away. But in the interim, his children had been, Shah Jahan's children, Dara Shiko and uh, uh, Aurangzeb, the firstborn and the uh, thirdborn sons, had been given to, to Jahangir as hostages. And they were trained uh, to their religion at that point. As you can see, there's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> so I can continue to just kind well, of talk. Or tell us about the difference between Dara and uh, our our bad guy, whose name I don't know how to pronounce. Um, who's going to give us trouble? I have a so, feeling. Uh, yeah. Boring, Which boring. one are you talking about? Uh, starts with an A. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's sort of two bad guys. There's the one son of the Emperor Aurangzeb, who in real history wound up eventually becoming the Mughal Emperor. And then there's the uh, religious fanatic, uh, Mullah, uh, Mohan. Right. And, well, this book um, has a lot more with uh, with Mullah Mohan in action, but uh, the overall politics have to do with this... Um, competition between the, the two most capable sons, uh, which is Dara and um, the uh, son of the empire who is who has gotten the full uh, Islam treatment with no um, with no toleration. Yeah, um, so historically, uh, Dara Shiko uh, lost um, many uh, Indian historians and uh, European historians have have asked that kind of question as what if, what if he had won? Uh, Dara was much more in the vein of his uh, grandfather uh, and great-grandfather uh, in that he was much more accepting of uh, making a synthesis of, of religions that uh, came into the Mughal court. And, uh, but he was... Uh, and he had the full favor of his father. His father doted on him. He was the bee's knees as far as Shah Jahan was concerned. Dara was uh, the guy who should have won. Um, but because of the relationship between Shah Jahan and his father, Shah Jahan kept him close. He kept him in sheltered. And he kept him, no matter what he did, he could do no wrong. And he... Dara was not served by this. He's a, he was a, in the historical record, he is a, uh, a spoiled brat. He would uh, irritate people no end. He also was very heavily into mysticism. There's even an anecdote about him uh, spending just uh, enormous amounts of money on a spell to get him to, uh, to capture Kandahar. That he uh, paid for the services of, and sacrifice of all these animals to get a uh, a spell cast on the uh, Afghan uh, rebellion uh, Persian backed rebels in Kandahar. So uh, he was not um, the best guy for the job, based on the fact that his father had kind of screwed up in his upbringing. Not not you know. Uh, making him serve in the army uh, as a, uh, you know, as, even as a general, he was not, he was just given uh, remuneration and rank without having earned it. And uh, this made, led to serious problems for him later on uh, because he had not the respect of everybody. He had all the money um, of the treasuries, but he did not have the respect. Now, Aurangzeb, on the other hand, from 15 years old, the incident uh, where he, he stands down an elephant. He uh, basically, uh, everybody else is running, scared out of their minds when the two uh, elephants were made to fight. And uh, the one elephant uh, got the other one out of there, but then decided it was going to go on a rampage. And everybody ran away 
except for Aurangzeb. And Aurangzeb's like, well, you know, if I die, it's as God wills it. Um, so he really did uh, kind of, not only did he, was he a, uh, a uh, one to speak about his religion, about how, you know, this is the right thing to do and that kind of thing. He really did try and live it. Uh, he didn't hold with music. He thought that that was, uh, you know, dancing and stuff like that was all frivolity. That it wasn't. You know, he would actually uh, make prayer caps uh, when he in his later days. Uh, that was his craft that he would do uh, in his free time. The guy was really, really orthodox in his uh, uh, Islam, and uh, you know, of course, there's a natural right there between those two brothers. There's a, a natural conflict that uh, has to arise when one is embracing all these Hindu philosophies, uh, Sikh philosophies, and the other is a hardcore, straight-up, uh, orthodox Islam. And within the, the sect, even, the Naqshbandi order was uh, very, very conservative and exists to this day and is still considered conservative. So uh, there was a lot to be had there as far as political conflict. That was part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Griffin Barber talking about 1636 Mission to the Moguls. Part two and the conclusion will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy? The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the Rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Coursera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 30 Brotherhood on Corsera. Wochens called, Hup! She and the four riggers carrying the extension started down the Kaisha's boarding ramp before it had clanged home on the outrigger. Brother Graves and a squad of troops in naval utilities waited on the quay, but sissies didn't need an audience to show off their skills. Daniel stood at the edge of the hatchway with his hands crossed behind his back, as though he were on a reviewing stand. He felt a quiet pride. To Adele, he said. The hatch doesn't stick anymore, did you notice? It just needed to be run in properly. We'll be returning the Kaisha in better condition than when I bought her. My other employer will probably leave the additional electronics in place, Adele said, looking toward the key. Daniel wasn't sure that she was actually seeing anything in the present, however. I'll clear my personal software. Not that it seems likely that the normal crew of a ship like this would be able to use it. No, I don't suppose they would, Daniel said mildly. I doubt the signal section of a battleship would be able to do what you do with it, Adele, he thought, but he didn't say that aloud. The riggers had clamped the boarding bridge to the end of the ramp and were unrolling it toward the quay. As soon as the far end made contact with the concrete, Hale and Connolly trotted down the bridge to lock it into place. Wochins turned and bellowed, All clear, Six. All right, Dossie, Daniel said. Release the passengers. The bosun's mate removed the padlock from the cargo cage which held the former crew of the Madison Merchant. Barnes, his partner, swung the chain-link partition wide open. All right, you filthy scuts, Dossie said. Get out and get out fast. If you're still inside when we turn on the steam hoses to clear the muck, that's your lookout. Evans, wearing thermal gloves, was indeed holding a charged steam hose. His size and strength made him the obvious choice to handle the hose, 
but Daniel hoped that Evans knew he wasn't really supposed to open the nozzle until everybody was out of the hold. Worst case, well, there'd be too many burn cases for the Keisha's Medicomp to handle, but Brotherhood served a mining region and ought to have good medical facilities. Most of the Keisha's crew waited on the bridge or in the forward part of the hold. Except for the anchor watch, they would be going ashore shortly in a port with numerous amusements tailored to spacers and hard rock miners. The groups had similar tastes. They were all able spacers, and their liberty suits ranged from colorful to works of art. The suits were ordinary RCN utilities, but decorated with ribbons along the seams and embroidered patches commemorating ships the spacers had served aboard and landfalls they had made. The Kaishis were a happy crew. They had money in their pockets and their captain's blessing to spend it on anything that didn't leave them dead or jugged for something he couldn't bail them out of. By heaven, Daniel muttered, I'm the luckiest captain in the RCN to have a crew like this. Yes, said Adele, just as I'm lucky to hit what I shoot at ten times out of ten. Practice has nothing to do with it. Daniel looked at her and grinned. Well, he said, let's just say that we make a good team, the crew and ourselves. The Madisons shuffled out of the cage, giving Evans as wide a berth as the tight space permitted. Vapor leaked from his hose nozzle, just in case anybody thought the threat was a joke. The passengers, or prisoners if you prefer to think of them in that fashion, carried the gear they had brought from the Madison merchant. Duffel bags and a variety of makeshift containers. Daniel had allowed anything, except weapons, which they could carry aboard in one trip. The hold had plenty of space. If it was short on other amenities, that was a problem which the Madisons could have avoided by not kidnapping Cleveland. Master Cleveland, Daniel called. Cleveland was in the hold, but squeezed into a corner of the forward bulkhead. Come and join Lady Mundy and myself, please. The spacers standing in front of Cleveland pushed their neighbors aside to make room. Cleveland passed through with a muttered apology to the spacers and a grateful smile for Daniel. Spacers took for granted a degree of physical closeness a well-born youth must find uncomfortable. As for the transformationists, they might believe in the community of mankind, but from what Daniel had seen in Pearl Valley, they also believed in a reasonable amount of personal space for each individual, despite the barrack-style housing. I see Brother Graves waiting for us on the quay, Daniel said, nodding toward the hatchway. As soon as Corey has released the Liberty Party, we'll go meet him. Cleveland nodded. I'm amazed at all that's happened, he said. I mean everything. Yes, you're releasing me so quickly, but being abducted itself, and everything. The war being over and Corsera being at peace again. The last Madisons were leaving the cage. Sorley had hung back. When he followed Schmidt at the end of the line, he held a case on his right shoulder to conceal his face from Daniel and Adele. Daniel smiled but said nothing. If I may ask, Captain, Cleveland said diffidently, what will happen to Captain Sorley and his crew? They'll find berths on the ships that begin landing here as soon as word of the peace gets out, Daniel said. Somebody's always going to need spacers, even spacers like Sorley's lot. They will be drafted into the Pantelarian Navy, Adele said crisply. She was still looking toward the quay, where the troops were collecting the Madisons as they stepped off the boarding bridge. Commissioner Arnaud's squadron of the Pantelarian Navy, at least. Drafted, said Daniel in surprise. The Madisons weren't from Pantelaria, and some of them, Sorley himself, were Cinnabar citizens. Sold, if you prefer, Adele said. They committed the crime of kidnapping on Corsera. They were tried in their absence by the interim council and sentenced to hard labor, which was commuted to banishment from Corsera in the custody of a competent authority. Tried? said Cleveland. He was clearly puzzled. Justice is quick here, Adele said with her usual composure. I had a word with Colonel Bourbon and Commissioner Arnaud before we left, and I provided them with an update from orbit while we were waiting for landing permission. I see, said Daniel. He did, and he began to smile broadly. Sorely reached the end of the boarding bridge and realized what was happening to his crew. He turned and shouted, you dirty bastard, Leary. You're going to have a shot, aren't you? Wilkins was standing on the quay. She had gone across to check the way Hale and Watkins had trussed the bridge to the bits. 
She grabbed Sorley by the shoulder and turned him to face her, then punched him in the stomach. Sorley doubled up. Wochins held Sorley's head out over the edge of the bridge so that his mixture of bile and undigested food spewed into the harbor. When Wochins decided there was no more to come, she tossed the captain to Schmidt's feet and said, Get him out of here. As an afterthought, Wochins kicked Sorley's case into the water also. Dusting her hands together with a grin, she walked back toward the Kaisha. All Kaisha personnel on Liberty are released, Corey announced over the PA system. Report back in 24 hours local time for further orders. Command out. Hallelujah, Lorano called, but for the most part, the crew filing off the ship was muted, though cheerful. The hop to and from Cleveland's world had been short, and it hadn't involved the space battle that most had expected. Some had even been looking forward to a battle. I bloody well wasn't, Daniel said, he added to his companions. Wasn't looking forward to fighting the merchant in space, I mean. Say, Master Cleveland, you may not know that we named the planet after you. When we get back to Xenos, I'll register HH1509270 at Navy House as Cleveland's World. Really? said Cleveland. You can do that? I don't think there'll be a protest, Daniel said. He thought of adding, it's not really much of an honor. He let the initial statement stand instead. Really? Cleveland repeated, this time without the rising inflection. I, well, thank you. My mother will be pleased, I think. For a long time, she didn't get much news of me that pleased her. The officials waiting on the dock had come up the boarding bridge when the Liberty Party was passed. Brother Graves was following a man and a woman in gray uniforms of different cut. The man's tunic had a plastic badge on the left breast reading Customs Service. It didn't quite cover the unfaded strip of fabric where an embroidered patch had been recently removed. The band on the woman's cap said Harbor Master. We're here to collect customs duties, the man said. And docking fees, the woman added. The procedures were instituted up recently. From the way you put it, they were instituted this morning, Daniel thought. At any rate, it couldn't have been longer than four days ago, because they weren't in place when we lifted off. Aloud, he said. I believe Lieutenant Corey can deal with docking fees, madam. And we carried only passengers on this arrival, but you're welcome to search the hold. You'll be more comfortable if you wait until the hold has been sterilized, but it's your choice. He turned and called. Lieutenant Corey, will you come aft, please? Brother Cleveland, I'm very pleased to see you safe, Graves said, edging to the side so that he could speak to his fellow. I'm afraid I've got bad news for you on the below-surface scans you asked me to look at, though. If we can go to my office, I can show you there. When the captain is free, that is. Corey entered from the bridge. He'd volunteered to be duty officer so that Vessie and Cazalet could take the initial liberty. Hale is on anchor watch, come to think, Daniel realized. Not that he was concerned about a problem until the former classmates were off duty in turn, and then it was none of his business. We can use my equipment, Adele said, unless Corey needs the console. Corey, you're relieved on the bridge until further notice, Daniel said. Come this way, please, Master Graves, and I'll show you the hospitality of the ship. Graves looked doubtful. Uh, I've scanned Pearl Valley, with much more sophisticated apparatus than what was used on the scans Brother Cleveland found on file. The results take a great deal of specialized capacity. I think you'll find that my hardware will be sufficient to the task, Adele said. Daniel noticed that she said my rather than our. If not, we can adjourn to your office, Brother Cleveland. Where we will wait for the sun to rise in the west, thought Daniel, because that's about as likely as the chance of Graves' software overpowering Adele's equipment. He closed the bridge hatch behind them, leaving Corey to deal with the local officials in the hold. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a harem of whirling, tittering, knife-wielding, scarf-covered, fantastic reveries and phantasms, plus the thanks and praise of a grateful and mostly upbeat readership for Eric Flint and Griffin Barber, authors of 1636 Mission to the Moguls. 
Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 